Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Great to be with you for another chat with Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. Uh, We'll be covering a pretty wide range of topics today. Uh, We'll be kicking off with China and the spy balloon and what that means for uh, the international situation and also here in Australia. And we'll be talking about a couple of domestic issues, including the voice to parliament and latest polling, which I think is very good for the no case and we'll get stuck in to that but Tony uh, great to be with you again thank you for sharing with us some of your uh, time and your busy schedule Um, I thought we could start off on the international scene and with China with the spy balloon uh, which went around the world ended in uh, over uh, continental United States uh, shot down uh, a matter of hours ago by the US military Uh, Tony, uh, what does this say about the intent of the Chinese Communist Party? Is this a big deal? Is this a sideshow? What's your perspective on the matter? I think it is a big deal. And it's a big deal because uh, it indicated the extent of China's spying. But it also indicated, very importantly, the strength of the United States resolve to resist this. And That's really very encouraging. Uh, We should not underestimate the extent of strategic competition between the United States and China. Mm. Um, China is determined to be the world's top country. It says so repeatedly. Uh, It believes that its culture is inherently superior. Uh, It believes that its size uh, and uh, its historical status as the so-called Middle Kingdom entitles it to be uh, the world's number one country. And look, uh, there's nothing wrong with national pride. There's nothing wrong with civilizational pride, and uh, China has uh, much to be proud of. But at least while it's under the Communist Party, its system is radically different to ours, and a world dominated by China would be very different and much more difficult for a country like Australia and for the kind of freedoms that we're accustomed to to take for granted. Uh, And the flashpoint remains Taiwan. No one should underestimate the determination of the Beijing regime to take Taiwan as soon as it can. And were that to happen, uh, either it would be uh, a seismic moment uh, and mark the collapse of the US-dominated world order that Mm. we've flourished under for the last 70 years, or uh, it could involve a a conflict which would make the current conflict in Ukraine look pretty small and pretty tame, horrendous Mm. though that obviously is. So these are difficult times that the world is entering into. And as we've said before on these podcasts, Dan, I think Australia is both psychologically and militarily and indeed economically uh, gravely underprepared for the challenges that we may may face in the not-too-distant future. Now, of course, uh, to a peace-loving people like uh, us here in Australia, indeed uh, to the peace-loving democracies of the world, mm. war is unthinkable. 
But because it's unthinkable to us, doesn't mean that it's unthinkable to others. And just because the costs would be horrendous, doesn't mean that some countries, some leaders, particularly dictators who are not accountable to an electorate, uh, might not think those costs worth worth bearing. Um, look at look at Putin and Ukraine. Uh, uh, he thought uh, going to war in Ukraine was worth it. Um, now I believe that uh, he made a dreadful miscalculation, and I think there's little doubt that he will be much the worse for this dreadful and evil decision. But, but nevertheless, he thought it was in his interests and he thought in his own messianic way it was in Russia's interests for uh, war to be unleashed. And um, if he can do it, uh, don't think others can't do it. And uh, as I said at the beginning, do not underestimate the absolute fixation of the commissars in Beijing uh, with taking Taiwan as soon as they can by, by force if necessary and don't underestimate the seismic impact this would have on the world economy and on everything else, uh, uh, even if it didn't result in in actual conflict, it yep. would have seismic impacts uh, throughout the whole world. Yeah, for sure. I think that's I think that's quite right. And uh, just in that spirit, I want to put to you a quote by uh, Douglas Wise, who's a former deputy director of the U.S. Defense Intelligence uh, Agency, reported in the Australian Today, and this is what he said. Uh, the Chinese balloon was part of a, quote, the largest intelligence operation in the history of the human race, mm -hmm. um, end quote. And uh, relatedly, I want to put to you a, a quote by Peter Jennings, uh, the former executive director of uh, the Australian Security uh, Policy Institute, ASPE, who said, uh, a spy balloon being deployed over Australia could, quote, definitely happen, uh, end quote. And another quote from Peter Jennings, there's no limits to where this technology could be used, uh, end quote. And Tony, this gets to your observation about Australia's preparedness. Um, speaking as a you know a former prime minister, uh, and having a, a keen interest in the defence area and having yourself given you know, what I would class as a series of landmark speeches in Taiwan, the UK and the US about our own defence situation. Um, is Australia prepared? And if we're not as prepared as we should be, what do we need to do in order to make sure we are prepared? Well, there's a lot of things that we need to do. And the first is we need to prepare ourselves to be robust in the face of anything which is completely over the top and unreasonable. And and, and look, I think we have to say that uh, the former government and the current government uh, are doing their best to uh, boost our military preparedness. Uh, the problem is that uh, there's never enough urgency with this. Mm. Um, there's not enough urgency from the politicians, and there's certainly enough. There's certainly not enough urgency from the defence bureaucracy, which moves with glacial slowness. Uh, it always prepares to do things in ten years' time. Well, we need to be doing things this month, yeah. next month, the month after that. Um, as as we've seen uh, as a result of the Ukraine conflict. Uh, stocks of ammunition, missiles, uh, uh, spare parts for weaponry uh, need to be uh, vastly increased. Mm. Uh, we also need to ensure that um, we're in a position uh, to respond uh, 
uh, to threats and challenges. And one of the best things that the former government did was finalise the uh, reciprocal access agreement uh, with Japan, mm. which my government began the negotiations uh, for, which means that Japanese forces can uh, be stationed in Australia and Australian forces can be stationed in Japan. Well, frankly, we should be rotating uh, ships and planes uh, through Japan because that would be a strong signal to China uh, that uh, Taiwan is not friendless. It would raise the costs to China. Uh, it would raise the doubts in the Beijing government's mind mm. uh, of the costs of any attack on Taiwan. And I think that's what we must do. We must make it much less appealing uh, to China uh, to engage in adventurism. Uh, we've got to make sure that the Chinese government understands that the consequences of any attack on Taiwan would be very, very, very severe. And the chances of success uh, would be um, uh, far from assured. Uh, that's what we need to do. And, 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 uh, and while we're obviously um, a country that uh, uh, needs to operate in concert with its allies, um, we are also a country of some significance and weight in our own right. And I think uh, uh, what we do is noticed. And that's why I think it's important that we should make the fullest possible use of this reciprocal access agreement with Japan. Mm. No, I agree. It's a point well made. What do you reckon of the comments of Penny Wong um, when she was undertaking her tour about uh, British history and British colonialism? And, you know, I my view on this is that her comments were probably not very helpful for cultural self-confidence in Australia and, and divisive and I think playing down the important role of of uh, the contribution, the you know significant contribution to Western civilization of, of Britain. And in this context, uh, I think it, it risks sort of diminishing our own sense of self-worth uh, on the global stage. And I bring this up in the context of, as I mentioned a moment ago, you've given a lot of speeches overseas about Australia and about uh, the Western world. Um, how how did you approach when you talked about Australia domestically when you were overseas? How did you approach that, and and what does that say about Senator Wong's approach? Well, look, I was a little surprised by her comments. Um, I, I mean, to give her her due, she's been very active in the Pacific, and I think that uh, that's to her credit, and I think it's been to Australia's benefit, and I also think that uh, she has. Uh, done quite a lot in her first few months as foreign minister yep. to uh, counter Chinese influence uh, in the in the Pacific. So good honour for that. But I thought these observations in Britain were a misstep. Uh, to start off with, uh, I don't normally think it's wise to chide your host, particularly if the host is a friendly country. And <laughs> Obviously, there's no more friendly country on earth to Australia than Britain, uh, other than perhaps New Zealand. Yes. Uh, so, so I think that was a mistake. And while every country has uh, embarrassments in its past, I think that Britain's contribution to the wider world has been overwhelmingly good. I mean, uh, in a sense, the modern world has been made in English. Um, look at the contribution Britain has made, the mother of parliaments, uh, the Industrial Revolution, um, the rule of law, 
um, the emancipation of minorities, uh, even the ending of the slave trade. Um, the slave trade, uh, the, the transatlantic slave trade was not ended by the American Civil War. It was ended by the Royal Navy, mm. which for 50-odd years had a West Africa squadron uh, whose sole purpose was to stop the slavers after slavery was made illegal in Britain in early in the early 1800s and abolished throughout the British Empire in 1833. Uh, but even before that, uh, the Royal Navy was working to stop the transatlantic slave trade um, under the influence of people like Wilberforce. So, yep. look, um, it's an extraordinary story, uh, the British contribution to the modern world and particularly to Western civilization. Yeah. And if Penny Wong, as our foreign minister, was going to chide Britain over some of the undeniably uh, less savoury aspects of Britain's past, I think also, in fairness, uh, some credit should have been given mm. for giving uh, the whole world uh, our, uh, our our common language. Yep. Um, you know, English is the world's common language. Um as I said, the mother of parliaments, the rule of law, the Industrial Revolution, the emancipation of minorities, all of these things began in Britain. So uh, let's be grateful. Indeed. I think uh, being a little bit more thankful and grateful for what we have mm. would certainly help uh. Uh, us as a nation and as a people. I want to turn now to the domestic front, Tony, if you don't mind, and uh, the voice to parliament. You and I have talked about this a lot. And um, and we, w we will obviously be talking about it um, right up to the referendum and perhaps beyond uh, because uh, it is a very big issue. Uh, in a day-to-day -day sense, obviously, uh, people are worried about how to get around, uh, what's happening to their cost of living, uh, are the kids doing okay at school and so on. These are the things that people worry about on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But in terms of what we might do to ourselves for the long term, this is by far the biggest issue yeah. facing our country. Any constitutional change is for keeps, yep. unlike legislation, which can always be reversed. Any constitutional change is for keeps. Yep. And this, in my view, absolutely emphatic view, is change for the worse. It's wrong in principle and it would be very bad in practice. Uh, you look at the difficulties that Indigenous people face in this country, all of them stem from separatism, uh, the sense that Indigenous people should be treated differently from everyone else, yeah. that they are somehow different from everyone else. Now, sure, they're the first Australians, but in the end, all of us uh, have far more in common than we have uh, that divides us. Yep. And Indigenous people need to be at the heart of the mainstream of Australia. Uh, any spirit or sense or institutionalised separatism uh, is destructive and this is institutionalised separatism. Uh, that's why it would be, as I said, wrong in principle and very, very bad in practice. Um, I don't have anything person, personally against the Prime Minister who is a decent human being who wants to do the right thing, I'm sure, but he's dead wrong on this, completely wrong. This idea that it's a, as he said over the weekend, a modest but meaningful change, it's not modest. It's a very, very big change, as even Malcolm Turnbull was honest enough to admit uh, in his most recent statement here. 
Uh, this is a massive change with far-reaching ramifications for the way we are governed. Um, it would be, uh, as Malcolm Turnbull originally said, uh, a third chamber of the parliament. Yep. Uh, as the distinguished uh, lawyer, uh, Louise Clegg, said the other day, it would be the fourth arm of government after the uh, executive, the legislative and the judicial branches. Yep. Um, it's the last thing we need. Um, sure, uh, let's have uh, Indigenous voices, as we do, mm. uh, 11 of them uh, in the parliament right now. Um, but but this idea that we should establish uh, uh, an activist's voice, uh, which will keep us permanently divided, uh, which will uh, peddle grievances, which will foster division, um, which will... Uh, uh, inevitably uh, be constantly claiming uh, more money, um, uh, more regulation, uh, when as in a different context, Noel Pearson has, has constantly said, um, Indigenous people need to stand on their own two feet. They need to be fully part of modern Australia, uh, as well as obviously proud of, uh, of, of, of their heritage. And so on, and and so, look, uh, this is a big deal. I guess the encouraging thing about today's poll, uh, from the point of view of people who don't want to see uh, this very wrong-headed form of constitutional recognition, is that only twenty-eight percent of people are strongly in favour of it. Yep. Twenty-three percent are already strongly against it. Yep. And I think the more people know about this voice, the less they'll like it, which is why the voice proponents don't want to give us any detail. They don't want to talk about it. They just want uh, to sort of wave it through on a wave of goodwill. Um, it's really a form of moral blackmail uh, that the voice supporters uh, are engaging in at the moment, yep. basically saying that if you don't support the voice, you are being disrespectful and dis. And, and impolite to Aboriginal people. And and honestly, the Prime Minister is not being frank uh, when he says that this is a modest a modest change. Uh, he's like a used car salesman who says, uh, oh, yeah, it's got great juco, don't worry about the engine. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, uh, he, he is, he's not being frank. Um, he must know uh, that this would have far-reaching ramifications and the fact that he admitted up at the Gama Festival in an interview uh, that it would uh, take a very brave government to go against the voice, uh, and he accepts that the voice can make representations on everything, not just the things that specifically uh, refer to Aboriginal people, well, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing uh, and he really should come clean about it. Well, I think that's a, f a fantastic enunciation of, of so many of the problems of the of the voice to parliament and um, Tony, you mentioned the poll. It was a national poll published today in the Australian uh, about the voice to parliament, 56% in favour, 37% uh, um, opposed, 7% don't know. Now, the thing to say here is it's a national poll, which has limited value because this is going to be decided at the state level, a majority of voters in a majority of states, but um, I think this is encouraging. 
Uh, I just wanted to ask you something here that I found most interesting about this poll. Um, 64% of those who have a university education are in favor, 29% against. That's by far the the highest uh, sub-demographic group and that overlays with high support for young people as well. See, uh, there's sort of this narrative that young people are left-wing and yes, you know, there's a, certainly an idealistic streak in most young people, which thank heavens there is, because if you're not idealistic when you're young, then maybe there's something wrong with you. But I don't know whether it's young people that are uh, are so much left wing as the institutions that are inculcating them with these, uh, I think, wrong headed views. And to me, this is just another example of how universities and schools are really contributing to significant cultural problems in our nation. You won't be surprised, Dan, that I substantially agree with you here. I think that uh, so much education, particularly in the social sciences, is thinly disguised propaganda. And uh, it's not at all surprising that uh, people with university degrees are more in favour of a voice than those without. Um, I think that uh, uh, we really do need to uh, get back to basics here. Um, Education at every level uh, shouldn't be about politics, it should be about developing curiosity, it should be about giving people the academic and intellectual foundation that they need to then go out and think for themselves. And uh, as I said, at every level, uh, too much of it is about uh, encouraging almost, uh, as it were, brainwashing uh, youngsters into thinking a certain way. Well, um, You know, uh, the whole point of the Enlightenment uh, was to get away uh, from that kind of uh, uh, mental rigidity. Um, And, uh, I mean, the great thing about our culture up till now um, has been that uh, uh, we have been endlessly curious. Uh, We've never thought that we've come to the last word in wisdom, virtue or insight, uh, and yet uh, the forces of political correctness uh, in our universities, the groupthink in our universities is almost completely monolithic uh, on topics like The Voice. Mm. No, it's a point point well made, Tony, and it sort of parlays nicely into our next topic that I wanted to get your analysis and opinion on, which is uh, Jim Chalmers' desire to remake uh, capitalism. Mm. Uh, Uh, Recently, he penned a a 6,000-word exegesis on all of the problems with um, capitalism. Uh, He's called it Capitalism with Values. And look, I'm all in favour of capitalism with with values, provided it's values based on the family and community and having local jobs and and, and patriotism and individual rights. There's nothing wrong with having an economy that's fundamentally couched in uh, societal and national values. But then you go through the essay and really he's got one big idea. More government, so-called investment, for climate change. That's essentially his one idea. Let me give you a, a, a couple of quotes here. He says, uh, quote, we will employ this co-investment model uh, in more areas of the economy with programs already underway in industry, housing, electricity, sector, so on. But this is the key point. He wants to have, quote, sustainable financial architecture, whatever that means, including a new taxonomy to label the climate impact of different investments, end quote. Basically, he wants to get the government to strong arm the private sector to pump more money into this unviable, unreliable wind and solar because um, in the absence of that government coercion, no one's going to invest in it because it doesn't make sense. Uh, But Tony, I wanted to get your assessment of of what Jim Chalmers is laying out there. 
Well, first of all, we have to understand what this term capitalism really embraces. And uh, capitalism is a is a, I suppose, a uh, a term which has been both uh, praised and damned over the years. Mm. Uh, but what it, it really covers is simply freedom in the economic sphere. Yep. Um, a, a capitalist system uh, basically refers to um, an economy which is uh, a market economy, and and a market economy is one where I can trust other people uh, to meet my needs because in their meeting my needs, they also meet their own needs. Now, for instance, today I've got a cup of coffee which has been provided to me by the person running uh, the cafe. Uh, I've come here uh, via an Uber. Um, I uh, was accommodated overnight in a building which was put together by uh, a very good building group. Um, I flew down here in a plane, uh, which was again uh, put together by people who were looking after the needs of others. Now, just imagine if I had to grow my own food, build my own house, organise every bit of transport for myself. Yep. Just imagine how difficult life would be. But over the centuries, um, again, principally in Britain, uh, because of the freedom mm, uh, yeah. which Britons have traditionally enjoyed, um, a, an ever more sophisticated economy developed where based on the latest knowledge, people started uh, specialising in doing the things that they were good at. Uh, and by virtue of that, uh, life increasingly transformed from being um, nasty, poor, brutish and short uh, into being blessed with almost unimaginable uh, benefits and luxuries. I mean, the life of, of the poorest Australian is almost unimagin unimaginably better today than the life of the richest person a couple of thousand years ago. And that's because of the operation of these markets which exist under that broad rubric of, of capitalism. Now, what Jim Chalmers wants to do, as you've said, uh, is, is not have uh, markets following their own dynamic, uh, different people meeting the needs of other people. Uh, he wants government to steer it, push it, yep. coerce it, um, subsidise it and tax it in, in particular directions. And Obviously, the energy market is a classic example of a market which has been driven awry uh, by government intervention. Now, um, we had uh, pretty free electricity markets a couple of decades back, yep. and under those free markets, we had the world's lowest power prices yep. because we took advantage of our abundant coal and gas. Uh over the last couple of decades, but increasingly in the last few years, governments, state and federal, have been interfering in the market, always in the name of reducing emissions and supposedly uh, fixing the climate yep. as a result of this. And we've got power prices going through the roof. Uh, we've got the risk of blackouts or 
demand management in inverted commas, which is a fancy name for rationing. Uh, and it's going to get a lot worse uh, under uh, Jim Chalmers' um, reinvented capitalism or values-based market, because this is not a market which operates to provide affordable, reliable power. It's a market which is operating to reduce emissions, and that's not that's a buggered-up market. Yeah. Uh, uh, the power market should be all about providing power uh, at the lowest possible cost, reliable 24-7 power at the lowest possible cost. But once you run the market for something other than that, you get all sorts of dreadful distortions. Now, yes, as human beings, we should have values. As a society, we should have values. Uh, but but um, the best way we apply our values to the market uh, is by creating uh, a, a system of law in which markets operate. That's to say uh, uh, contracts have to be respected. Um, you cannot uh, jeopardise people's safety uh, and so on with unsafe products, unsafe work practices, etc. Um, but of course, all of that's got to be tempered by, by reason and balance. Uh, nothing can be perfectly safe. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, we've got to make sure that it's as safe as we reasonably can make it, and so on. And look, obviously, um, if we're if we're if we're producing electricity, uh, we've we've got to do it uh, uh, in respect to the various rules against pollution. Um, but carbon dioxide is not pollution. Carbon dioxide is a trace gas which is necessary for life. And yes, by all means. Let's minimise our production of it. Yep. Uh, but in the end, when the whole point of the electricity market uh, becomes reducing emissions, it's not really a market. Uh, and as, we've, as we are in the process of most painfully discovering, um, it does us a lot of damage in the process. And there's going to be a lot more of uh, these distortions, uh, a lot more cost, a lot more inconvenience, a lot more difficulty uh, under Messiah Jim's new economics. Yeah, for sure, Tony. Uh, that's pretty well summarised. I reckon I just wanted to ask you one last question uh, just quickly before I let you go because I know you've got a, a pretty packed schedule today. Uh, but just one last question on this. I mean, to me, and I think you and I talked about this some months ago, I mean, this government was always going to be more Whitlam than Hawke. Um, Albanese did a pretty good job in the election campaign last year of saying, you know, I'm pretty moderate, centrist, so mm. forth. But um, every single day that goes by, whether it's the voice, whether it's the economic agenda, whether it's the carbon safeguard mechanism that's about to go through, which is a, a carbon tax and trade scheme. Um, these are all examples of how this government is, is much more radical than most Australians were led to believe. So just what are your thoughts on that? Uh, look, Dan, you're, you're right. Uh, as uh, Paul Keating uh, once said, uh, change the government, you change the country. And uh, as I think uh, Peter Credlin might have pointed out on the weekend, uh, he wasn't just making the obvious point that different governments take a different attitude to different issues, but the whole point of a Labor government is to change the country. Yep. It's not to manage the country, uh, it's to change the country because so many of the activists that run the Labor Party, especially these days, they don't much like Australia. Um, and uh, it's not like it was in the old days uh, when they wanted to make Australia a working man's paradise, which is frankly a pretty laudable objective. You wanted to be a working man's paradise or a working 
person's uh, paradise. But no, uh, these days they're, they're completely absorbed with uh, climate politics, identity politics. Um, the view is that Australia is irredeemably racist and sexist. The view is that uh, a, proper, a proper market economy uh, is irredeemably uh, environmentally vandalistic. Um, they don't, I mean, even, they don't want to change Australia Day to take one issue. No. They just don't want to celebrate Australia. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and they don't want anyone else to be able to celebrate Australia. And, 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 and this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a government which is increasingly engaged uh, in class war economics uh, and, and a culture war uh, against just about everything which has done so much to make Australia the wonderful place that it is. Well, Tony, that's a wonderful note uh, to end on. So once again, thank you for your your time and your analysis and, and commentary. And I know our viewers and listeners really appreciate you taking the time to continue engaging in the big issues facing our nation's future. So Tony, greatly appreciate your time and looking forward to our next chat. Me too, Dan. Thanks, mate. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.